everyone. Glad to be up here with you today. It's Palm Sunday, and some of the amazing things happened in my life. One of my earliest memories is actually from Palm Sunday. It was going like the transition from a toddler to a little kid, so I don't remember it. It's kind of fuzzy, but I remember the feeling and what was happening really well. I was at a Voyager's church in Irvine, California, and all of us kids from the elementary department were lined up back in two rows, and they handed us each palm fronds. Anybody done that? Where kids walk in with palm fronds? Okay. And when you put a palm frond in a kid's hand, what, what's the next thing? Right, right, right. You wave it and you whip it, okay? That's just innate. It happens. So I, it was put in my hand, and I was demonstrating to my younger brother because I had to show him how to properly wave and whack, okay? So I'm doing that, but what happens? Apparently, I got a defective one because I was waving it, and it broke. And as a little five-year-old kid, that was the end of the world. That my whole world was crushed in that moment. Everyone else had a perfect palm frond. And here's little Patrick with his little limpy <laughs> palm frond. How am I supposed to praise Jesus with this limpy palm frond? <laughs> and so time came in. And before we were about to come in, I, I, I'm begging and pleading with anybody around me. Hey, do you want to trade? <laughs> you got to trade. I remember doing that with my brother. <laughs> do you want to trade? And everybody's like, no, I don't want your defective palm frond. Please get out of here. That ain't right. And so eventually we start walking in and we get on stage and we start singing songs. I'm not singing. I'm still trying to barter and trade with people as this is going on. And the whole time, all of my thinking, all I, I'm thinking as a kid, I've lost. This doesn't count. This isn't good enough. And that's my earliest memory of Palm Sunday. It's a great memory, is it not? <laughs> There's a point I want to come back to that because... I think some of us walk into this room ready to praise Jesus, and in our heart we have a broken palm front. We have broken praises we're ushering and ushering to him. Because many of us in here affirm and believe that he is the Messiah King. He's my King. But why do we believe in him as the promised King? A lot of us in here probably do affirm and go through it, but I want to go to those Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to assure our intellect and our mind, which will lead to our heart, the assurance that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah and he is our King, worthy of worship and praise, no matter how good or how imperfect it is. And so as we jump into the, the, the story of the triumphal entry, we will then jump through the Old Testament looking at some big prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to confirm that he truly is the Messiah King. Will you guys pray with me? Gracious Father, we ask for a blessing to be upon all of us this morning as we open up your word. Please speak to us through the Spirit that we may be afflicted or comforted in whichever manner that you have for us. May you remove burdens and obstacles, even temptations from our mind right now, that we may clearly see the affirmation that you have given your Son as being our Messiah and King. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And so we'll be jumping around, but let's just go over the, the story of the triumphal entry to begin with. Jesus tells his, two of his disciples, I want you to go into this town and you're going to find the colt of, of a donkey that hadn't been re- ridden on. And if someone questions you, I want you to say the Lord has need of it. Now in the grand scheme of things, this is not the craziest thing he's ever told his disciples, okay? So they're thinking, great, I can go do this, even though they're stealing a donkey, but they ask for permission when needed and that happens. That's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. It's a prophecy that he fulfills. It's not the greatest of prophecies, but Jesus fulfills every prophecy about him, even the small, minuscule ones. 
But also other people, if knowing that story in Zechariah, could look at that and try to reenact it themselves. And that's why we have greater prophecies about Jesus that only he can fulfill. Only he can meet the requirements found in those. And so I think we should start chronologically. The first glimpse of the gospel and the first promise of the Messiah comes right after the fall. And so the first thing we need to do in order to affirm Jesus as the great Messiah King is recognize that the Messiah must crush evil. The Messiah must crush evil. And so God created all things. They, Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. And then the serpent tempted them. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They became ashamed and they scattered and they went out. And Jesus eventually gathered them and the serpent together, lined them up, and is about to speak to one each individually. And he looks at the serpent and here is our first prophecy about the Messiah. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first prophecy of the Messiah isn't given uh, to mankind. It's given as a sentence or a judgment against the devil. We know that the serpent represents the devil as we look at, into the New Testament, as the New Testament confirms that. And we notice some, untru- some other interesting things would take place. This Messiah will come from the seed of woman. Eve, that, uh, excuse me, uh, Mary that we looked at in the New Testament. Not Adam. But through Mary, through Eve. And there will be something that will happen. He, so it will be a male, he shall bruise your head. This word bruise is to crush, to end, and to kill. And so this Messiah must crush evil. And in return, that Messiah will suffer. His heel will be nipped at, it will be bit at. Now, so this Messiah, this person that it must be, it must be a man, it must be male, it must come from a woman, But he also must be extremely powerful to crush evil. Did Jesus demonstrate enough power in his ministry that he would be able to crush evil? Are we able to grasp that in his ministry? We certainly see when him and his disciples are crossing the Sea of Galilee, wind and waves are a huge commotion and they are filled with fear and uncertainty and Jesus is asleep in the boat. They wake him up. He kind of rebukes them. He says, what's the big deal, guys? And he looks at the wind and the waves and said, be still. And his disciples are filled with amazement and wonder. Even he commands creation. But then there's something greater, a greater power he demonstrates. When he's ministering in the the Sea of Galilee, in this area, he goes to the Decapolis, one of these Greek city-states, and he speaks to a man that approaches him, and he's filled with demons, a legion of demons, and he, he tells them, be gone. And they plead with him, don't, don't end us, just let us go into those pigs. Now, what's amazing is Jesus doesn't say, in the name of, fill in the blank, be gone. He just says, be gone. Therefore, he issues the power. He's the power and authority over evil. Therefore, he has the power to crush evil. Jesus demonstrates that. He is able to crush evil. Now, we kind of walk through this and think through the Messiah. Well, if he crushes evil and demonstrates that amount much power, is it just directed towards what's wrong and evil? No, his power also extends as a blessing. And so on one hand, the Messiah will crush evil as a king. But next, if we look through the book of Genesis, we get to the next glimpse of the Messiah. The Messiah must bless the families of the earth. This comes as... After the the flood, after the Tower of Babel, God calls Abram out of Mesopotamia, and he gives him a promise. 
I'll read you this promise, because at the end we get this idea of what the Messiah must do. I will make your name, he's speaking to Abram, into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. It's kind of a narrow focus, really on Abram and anybody connected to him and the Jewish people. But then the last part, it expands greatly to encompass everybody, all time, everywhere. And he says, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This Messiah must be able to bless people and Christians here in eastern Idaho as well as in China, as well as in Europe, as well as 20 years ago or 2,000 years ago. The Messiah must be able to bless people then as they bless people now. This blessing must be huge. It can't just be financial. It can't just be territorial. It's got to be more than that because what would bless us here might not bless someone somewhere else. And so we ask this big question, what blessing must this Messiah bring that is able to be enjoyed by all people everywhere all of the time? This is a big blessing. So what could it be? Let's look at Isaiah. This is an amazing passage talking about the Messiah and the interaction he will have and what he will do in this world. And in verses... 6 and 7 of Isaiah chapter 11, we read these interesting verses. It says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf will be together, their little child shall lead them, the cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. That does not happen today, does it? Now look at these verses that should be up by behind me. Verse 8. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hands in the adder's den, and it shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Do you know what's being described as the blessing? The restoration of the effects of sin in all people's life. The effect of sin that has happened in this world is perpetrated. Now the lion eats the lamb, and we abhor serpents. All of that will be undone. The Messiah will restore what was supposed to be. This should actually bring us back to the curse we just read in Genesis. What's verse 8 saying? The nursing child shall play over the cobra's den. Anybody in here like snakes? Like one or two of you. Okay. That's the outlier. There's the norm and then there's the exception. You're the exception. Okay. In the great scope of humankind, I, serpents and snakes are not something we keep as pets. If you actually read scientific material on, on training an animal to be a pet, a serpent is unable to be trained in any way. No one's been able to, what's that word, uh, become a pet? I'm totally worried. Domesticate. Domesticate. Thank you. God, I lose words sometimes. You people are awesome. A snake's never been domesticated, Ever. This is the restoration of the effects of sin. I will put enmity between you and the serpent. It's being undone. So think about the things. If we were to put this in our vernacular today, what's being undone? Did Jesus demonstrate the undoing and the restoration from the effects of sin? Absolutely he did. The hurt and the abused were made new in Jesus Christ. The struggling and the paralyzed are motivated by his words of hope and prosperity and promise. The lonely are made known and are welcomed into his body, the church. The lost are guided by his living words, speaking perfectly into their frustration and their confusion, bringing them peace. 
The enemies of God have been pardoned by the king's willing sacrifice. Jesus demonstrated all this. You know what he also demonstrated? A reconciliation between parent and child that has grown dysfunctional. I've seen that in my own life. If you were to ask me about my own testimony, I don't start with me. I start with my dad. When my dad came to Christ, he put an end to a, an immense amount of generational sin. I come from a long line of Irish angry drunkards. We just, uh, the drink and getting angry, that happens. Now, as I was growing up, my grandpa was at every one of my plays, every one of my practices, every one of my games. And I remember asking my dad, how come grandpa's here? And you know what he said? Because he was never at any of mine. And that stuck with me. And as I got older, I began to understand. I began to hear stories of the verbal abuse that went on between my dad and my grandpa. I knew none of it because my dad forgave him and the relationship was restored because my dad says, I believed and placed my faith in Jesus Christ. He is my king and he is restoring the effects of sin in my life. So relationships are no longer broken. They're made whole again. That's an amazing Messiah. He is able to bless all the families of the earth because he removes the effects of sin in people's life by eradicating the power that sin has over us by conquering it on the cross. And so we can live without fear. We can live with confidence, knowing truly that Jesus is going to restore what is broken in me. But notice there's two parts to this blessing. First is the restoration of the effects of sin, but what was also lost in the fall? When Adam and Eve sinned, what, were they, what happened to them? They were cast out of the garden. They no longer could be in the presence of God any longer. And so what happens at the end here in, in this prophecy in Isaiah? And the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. Right before Jesus was about to be crucified, he's coming to the end of his life. One of his disciples, Philip, comes up to him and asks him, if you show us the Father, it will be enough for us. And what's Jesus' response? If you've seen the, me, you've seen the Father. Jesus restores the effects of sin to the point where we now know who God is and have access to him. This is the amazing beauty of the blessing that this applies to everybody everywhere all of the time. It takes a pretty special person to be able to accomplish this. But how do we know that this will continue? This is a great blessing that we can hold on to and expect, but there's certainly something that I... I kind of wrestle with because everything that we have in life that's good is often fleeting. You feel happy and excited and it eventually goes away. Whoever this guy is, how do I know he'll be consistent? How do I know that his rule and the restoration will remain? It won't be undone again. What guarantee do we have that Jesus, if he is the Messiah, is someone we can count on again and again to be the same guy? We have to go to Exodus that the Messiah must be righteous. Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 through 17, this is where we get the Ten Commandments. These are God's righteous requirements for all people everywhere all of the time. Now, anybody in here love to snuggle up with the Ten Commandments? Like, that's your go-to? When I'm having a hard time in life, where do I go? I love the these and thous. I love that stinging word of I'm not good enough. Anybody here like that? No, okay, right. Okay, so we don't see the Ten Commandments that way. That's because they're like an x-ray. They just show us what's wrong, but they have no power of actually fixing what's wrong. And so this Messiah that must come must meet each one of these righteous requirements. And so what do we know about the Messiah? What should be expected of him? I'm going to go to the prophecy as it's refined a little bit more in Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. 
It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will rise up for David a righteous branch. That's because every king that came after David was not righteous. They failed. They missed the mark. They were not good. Even the good kings didn't. Josiah was a good king, and at the end of his life, we get this little tagline that says, He was a good king in the sight of the Lord, but he did not take down the high places. He had a blind spot. We all have blind spots. So every person that would try to become the Messiah, they have to be perfect and above reproach. They have to meet every righteous requirement. And so then we get this further descriptive. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In order for him to have that name, he must be righteous. In order for him to be our righteousness, he therefore must be righteous. So this coming Messiah must meet every qualification that we read that God has established. Did Jesus do that? You bet he did. Nowhere in the Gospels is Jesus ever accused of not being merciful, not being just, not being righteous. What he's accused of is being a blasphemer, saying that he is God. That's only wrong if he isn't, but if he is, it's not a problem. Okay? The next thing he's accused of is being demonic when he has power over Satan's and demons and doesn't say and claim someone else's name. So they think his. Outside of that, every interaction with people that he is either demonstrated as merciful, justice, just, and righteous. He's not accused of being a sinner. That's not why he went to the cross. Jesus is righteous. In his name, we know him as our righteousness. And so we hold on to the fact that he will crush evil, that he'll bless all families, that he is our righteousness for us. But then, what's the problem with each king and ruler we've had here on this earth? If it's a good king and a good ruler, eventually their reign of influence ends. At some point, a good ruler is followed by a bad one in our experience in world history that we know of. So we get this amazing promise that the Messiah must be a son of David. The Messiah must fulfill a promise to sit on an eternal throne. Does Jesus demonstrate that? Look at me in 2 Samuel verses seven, chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. What's taking place is David is transitioning from a conquering king into a ruling monarch. And usually what takes place in that time and age is once you've established some sort of peace, you want to get, give praise and homage to the God that helped you accomplish it. And so he wants to build God a great house because David thinks like he shouldn't be in this lousy little tent. He should be in something great and majestic, which, is, which should be attributed to him. And God speaks to the prophet Nathaniel and tells him something very special. I want you to tell David I don't want a house. I've never asked for a house. I have no need for a house. Instead, the gift I want you to give me is a promise that I actually give you. And see, what set David apart as a king is he, above all else, wanted to bring honor and glory to the Lord's name. Even in his fall, the reason why I love that David is called a man after God's own heart is that because he sought forgiveness for the wrongdoing he's done. And so he wanted to bring honor and glory to the Lord. And so through that, God now wants to establish a king forever in the name and likeness of David and actually greater than David And we read in verse 15 about this king that's promised. My steadfast love will not depart from him. He'll love forever. I will always love this individual, this Messiah. 
as I took it from Saul and put it away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. That's an amazing promise that we get to receive, that the, that the crushing of evil, the righteousness and the blessing are not going to go away. They're not fleeting. They will remain. This king will remain. We don't have to worry about it ending. Do you often think about forever? It's an interesting thought. As disciples in Jesus, I think there needs to be a routine, mindful examination of my life in God in heaven. Every once in a while, if not weekly, we need to come back to the thought that one day I will be with God in heaven forever so that my joy and contentment never ends. Have you ever thought about that? Like for me, my greatest time of contentment and peace is actually Sunday afternoon when I'm home with the family, the work's done, the week's over, I'm sitting with my kids, I'm eating, I'm working. I'm excited. I can't wait to get to that moment. I'm almost there. (laughs) But Monday comes, does it not? Can you imagine having this blessing, the restoration from sin, the crushing of evil, and it does not end? Man, I'm humbled and excited. And so we could go through each one of these amazing blessings. We can go through more prophecies. We can go to Isaiah 53 and talk about the suffering servant. We could go to Daniel and how he must be the son of man. We can go to each logical understanding of what the Messiah must fulfill. But so what? So what if he fulfills all these things? It's still a choice. You you must believe in the Messiah. He must be your king. He's not going to force it upon you. And so is he? Is he your king? So what? Does he crush evil? Are you excited about that? Does that fill you with joy and hope? It ought to. That there are blessing and the restoration from the effects of sin are destined for your life. That that is what the Lord is working to in your life. And the life of this church. But believing in the Messiah must be your choice. And so let's go back to the triumphal entry. Because as Jesus approaches the city, there are four groups of people. And they each have a reaction to the triumphal entry. We have the crowd. We have the disciples. We have the Pharisees and the religious rulers. And then we have Jesus himself. They each have a different reaction to Jesus coming as the promised Messiah and King. And we fit into one of those. I hope we fit into the right one. And so to begin with, we, we, should, we should start off with the disciples. They, they get caught up in this fervor. The city is going crazy. Lazarus was raised from the dead. The word and the commotion has gone out. And people have this messianic fervor because in, if you look in Daniel, Jesus is falling within the timeline of when the Messiah should come. And so people are easily, they'll throw the sticker Messiah on anybody that looks like it. And Jesus is the next one to come up. But in fact, he's not the next one. He's the best one so far. And so the people are ecstatic and the disciples get wrapped up in it. As far as I'm concerned, when I read it, it's like they think uh, we're knights of the round table and we're going to court. Like our day of sleeping in the dirt and rocks are over. We've made it. We've arrived. And they're excited. And they're saying, Hosanna. They're throwing their cloaks down too because the crowd misses it as well. The disciples are working on it and Jesus has worked through them and they eventually get it as the week goes on. The disciples are teachable. They're wrapped up in it, but eventually they're teachable. But then we come to the crowd who, as we know of the story, they're not teachable. 
They don't demonstrate that they're willing to change. And so they're wrapped up in this excitement because the Messiah, the King, they're saying, Hosanna, as Daniel said, it says, save us now. And God is trying to communicate to them, I am. I am. I'm trying to do that very thing. But in their mind, they want saving from Rome. So when Jesus approaches and enters into the city, in their minds, he is coming to make war with Rome. But in, God, in his mind, he is coming to make peace with God. And these people don't like it. But in this praise and commotion, we have the third camp. We have the Pharisees and religious rulers. And their response is a monicum of truth. They come up to Jesus and they rebuke Jesus and say, shut these people up. Quiet the crowd. Their praise is imperfect. Their praise is not right. It's off kilter. It's missing the mark. They're rebuking Jesus for receiving the praise and allowing it to continue. And they're partially right. That's evil. If we go all the way back to the beginning, Satan is the great accuser. And right now he is accusing Jesus and the disciples and the crowd of having imperfect praise and Jesus receiving it. But that's the amazing thing about Jesus and his response. He accepts imperfect praise. Because what does he tell the Pharisees? He says, even if they were silent, the very rocks would cry out. That's an amazing thing about Jesus being the king. And this is why I want you to choose him, to make a decision to believe in this king. Because he doesn't require perfect praise. He asks for us to be with him and issue what the pra- whatever praise we have to give. See, some of you came in here today and you began to sing and you were just going through the motions. Or you came in here to worship God and you're hearing the word, but you know what sin took place in your mind and your heart the past couple days and you don't feel worthy and you have the great accuser pointing his finger at you saying, you can't praise, you're not in the right state to praise. But that's not why the king came. He didn't come to receive perfect praise from people. He came to elicit and to create in us the ability to issue perfect praise by restoring us from sin. By undoing the evil that we are accustomed to and grounded in, he's going to end it and crush it. And so he accepts imperfect praise, people. He accepts a kid waving a broken palm front and has no problem with it. But then his next reaction is really important. As he approaches the city, sitting on the donkey, the crowd is going crazy, they're excited, and he should have a big grin from ear to ear. What is he doing? He's weeping. Tears are filling his heart. Everyone else is excited, but he is broken. And what does he say to the people? You have missed the time of your visitation. I have come, I have shown you that I'm the king, that I'm the Messiah, I'm the fulfillment of all of your hopes and dreams and expectations, and you said thanks, but no thanks. And so he weeps and mourns because this weighs on his heart. And that happens today. The triumphal entry happens every Sunday as we walk into this service, as we're here. Some come in with imperfect praise and praise God. He accepts it because he is our righteousness, not the other way around. And then there's some who've come in here, have heard the gospel and say, thanks, but no thanks and walk out. So what's your choice? Is he your Messiah King? Are you willing to bow down and to serve him? He accepts it imperfectly because he will transform me through the power of the spirit and perfect it in, that's what we call sanctification. That's a process that works its way out over your whole life until the Lord calls you home. But for those in here who don't believe, you need to come to grips with the idea of who am I rejecting? 
And what kingdom am I rejecting? And so as the band comes back up here, I want to begin to ask you that question. What am I rejecting? If I reject Jesus as the Messiah King, I think you reject the fact, if you say no to it, that he, it, you, re, you reject a kingdom that is eternal. You reject something that does not change and has no end. You will reject his righteous judgments. You reject the fact that he'll deal perfectly with me, honestly, and show me mercy. You'll reject his benevolent reign as he tries to restore you. You'll reject restoration. You'll say, I, I'm good enough as I am. But the last thing you'll reject is being in his presence. You'll reject his glorious kingdom. I pray, brothers and sisters, that as you sit here today, that you come to grips with the choice that you'll make. We could go through every logical reason, but you need to work with him to be able to understand what you're choosing and what you're not. And so as we turn our attention to worship, as we praise him for being the king, I pray that you'll worship all the louder knowing that even if you're going through the motions today or if it's imperfect in some sort of way, the Lord still says, I want it. And it is right because I am the king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for a true blessing for us as we finish up our sermon today and we continue through Holy Week. For the steps that you took from walking into the city to rising up on the cross was on our behalf. For you fulfilled every prophecy and I pray that as we try to praise you, that we remember the goodness that you have for us in receiving it. And I pray for those who have yet to accept your rule and reign as Lord and Savior of their life. I, I ask that you afflict their heart, that they'll no longer bring sadness to yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.